Let's come around God's word, but before we do, let's just bow before him and ask him to fill us with what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, remind us again, Lord, that this is your word. This is your inspired word to us. It's not just a book. And Lord, as we read from the words from your book, may you make it alive in us. And Lord, as you speak to us from your word today, may it be your spirit speaking to our hearts. Speak to each one of us, Lord, whether we know you or whether we don't know you, so that you will be glorified. Amen. Let's turn in God's Word to uh, Luke chapter 7. We're carrying on our studies in Luke chapter 7. And we're at verse 18 this morning. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And we're going to go right through to verse 35. Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 35. Now, before we do this reading, you need to track with today. Jesus is going to deal with five different groups of people. So you need to really recognize them, otherwise you might get a little bit lost in the text. The first person he deals with is John the Baptist. John sends a message to Jesus and Jesus sends a message back to him. And then Jesus deals with the messengers that come from John the Baptist and something happens with them too. And after this, Jesus speaks to the crowd and he defends John the Baptist because there would obviously been rumblings happening about John being in prison Oh, what's he done now again? God is punishing him. And so God deal, Jesus deals with the crowd too and their attitude towards John. And then Jesus deals with, as he does with the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders. He's always going on at them because they were leading the people astray. And then lastly, he speaks to you and I. And there's a sentence there for you and I. And so let's look for these five different groups and then you'll be able to track through the text this morning. So Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to Jesus. What things? What had happened previously? A dead man had been raised. Do you remember? At Nain. Jesus raised some dead people here. No, are you remembering? A dead man was raised. Alright, so that's what happened. Jesus healed the sick. Lepers had been healed. And so this, this, this uh, news had filtered through via John's um, disciples to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, verse 19, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that very same hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered these messengers, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then he adds verse 23, and we'll come to it. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
When, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, said Jesus, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, if you're worried, we will make sense of that passage as God helps us. You might be one of those people who lives by the following motto. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Are you one of those? I want to ask you a question. If that is your motto in life, what happens when things go wrong and you are no longer in control? In other words, when things get too big for you. Because they will. Are you ever driven to doubt then? Because if you do, you've got every reason to. Or maybe you're a Christian believer here today and you find yourself doubting. It might even be about your faith itself. Do you even recognize when you are doubting? Do you recognize those symptoms in your life? Those questions which suddenly come to you? Those feelings of anxiety and maybe even insecurity? How do your temporary circumstances affect your faith? Do your circumstances dictate your faith? When things are not working out according to your plans and your timing, does your faith start to waver? When you've been praying and you might have been praying for years and you receive no answer, do you perhaps start doubting God? Those are very real questions. Or maybe it's just me. We need to stop here this morning and to differentiate. You see, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Now listen clearly because you'll understand the passage then. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is the matter of the mind. We look at things happening, we cannot understand, 
what God is doing and we start asking why. We start asking questions. It's a natural thing. We are built that way. We ask questions. But here's the here's problem, you see. It's a very small step from doubt to unbelief. You see, unbelief is a matter of the will. Yes, these things happen to me. I ask questions. But I refuse then, with my will, to believe God's word, God's promises, and I don't obey what he tells me to do. Do you get the difference? Doubt, if it's not dealt with properly, leads to unbelief. And that's where the problem lies. Now, what does that have to do with John the Baptist? Well, we find in this passage this morning that John the Baptist, who was a great man of God, we find him to be just a man like you and I. He was just a human being. He knew what it was to be anxious. He knew what it was to be insecure. He knew what it was to be unsure. He knew what it was to be limited by his humanity. But Jesus responds to him in a beautiful way, and I want, and I want us to see that this morning. How does Jesus deal with this great man of God? You see, there's a question that needs to be answered firstly this morning, and it's this one, and it's the question that John sent via his messengers to Jesus. And I've just put it in everyday terms. He said, Jesus, are you for real? Many people ask that question today. Are you for real? You see, the news had been spreading right throughout that whole region of Capernaum, right through to where John was in prison. His, his own disciples had brought this news to John. And so John sends messengers back to Jesus, and he says to him, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you for real? Now, some have said that John, the great man of God, used this, his time in jail and this news of Jesus to teach his disciples that they needed to lean on Jesus more and not so much on him. And so he sent them off with this message deliberately as, let's call it, a teaching moment to teach them, to wean them off him and put them onto the Lord. Some have said that. But I've got a problem, you see, with verse 23. I've got a problem with that verse. And we'll come to that verse. You see, I think this passage is teaching us this morning that John was just a human being like us. Yes, he had his ministry. It was a great ministry. He had fulfilled his task. But now he was sitting in prison. And if you know anything about King Herod and Herodias, she was a beast of a woman. King Herod didn't have many scruples either. And what they'd done is, they'd got rid of her husband, his brother by the way, so that he could marry Herodias. And so there was King Herod married to his sister-in-law. And John had spoken up about this and he had said it was a revulsive thing to do before the Lord. It was wrong. He had dared to stand up before the king and so he had landed up in prison. And you can read more about that in Luke chapter 3 verse 19 to 20. And there John was imprisoned in this dungeon of Machaerus, which was a desert fortress way out near the Dead Sea. 
isolated. And there he is, lost to the rest of humanity, sitting in his dungeon. And it's not like our prisons today, by the way. He didn't have TV and all the comforts of three meals. The prisoner had to provide for themselves through contacts, otherwise they died. And there he was, isolated. A lot of time on his mind, and he's thinking. And then he hears this news. And he knew that his life was in danger because when Herod put you in prison, some other time your neck was up for it. And later on we read in Mark chapter 6 verse 21 to 29, we read what actually happened to John. He actually literally lost his head because Herod had this big party, he got drunk, he started bragging about, I'll do anything for you because he was sexually attracted to his daughter, his stepdaughter. And he made her a rash promise. And through her mother she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so that's what he had to do. And so John lost his head later. But you see, John, as he's sitting in prison, he had heard this news of Jesus and what Jesus was doing. And he knew that Jesus had come to set up his kingdom. And now with John being in danger of being put to death, fearful for his his life, he looks and he, and he sees and he hears the news and yet the kingdom hadn't come the way John had expected it to come. And maybe as John is sitting there in prison, he's anxious to see the Messiah fulfilling what he had come to do. Maybe as he's there in prison, he's becoming impatient with Jesus. Come on, Lord, establish this kingdom now. I'd like to see it, what it is. I'd like to be part of it. Maybe his faith was beginning to waver. Maybe he just needed some encouragement in his isolated prison cell. You know, it's not unusual for leaders, for Christian leaders to waver, to need encouragement. Think of Moses. He leads the people through the desert. The Lord provides them with manna day in, day out. And what do the people do? They start moaning. Oh, not manna again. We could have had a lemon. Just think of the fish we had in Egypt. Garlic. All the good food. And here we've got manna again. And so they start moaning. What does Moses do? He loses his rag. He says, Lord, how can I lead this people? Just kill me. Well, that's the solution, isn't it? He needs encouragement. Let's take Elijah. Elijah goes... He sees this massive work of the Lord, fire coming down from heaven, burning up an altar that's been watered down so the the rocks are nearly floating. God burns the whole thing up. He sees 450 prophets of Baal killed. And then Jezebel comes up against them. And what does Elijah do? Oh, I can't handle this. He is out in the desert. Lord, just let me die. The Apostle Paul, yes, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. He had obviously been going through a whole lot of travail, and he did, if you read anything about his life, he was in prison, out of prison, escaping over walls, shipwrecked, all right? And he'd had enough. He was human. And he comes to a point where he says in that passage, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and then God acted. You see, he came to the point too where he just couldn't carry on. I think that's where John is. 
And so these messengers come from John to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? He says to him in a sentence, he says, Tell John, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. And the Bible says that even while these messengers were coming to Jesus, he was at that very time busy performing miracles. When they arrived, there was Jesus busy performing miracles. They could see with their own eyes. And so Jesus says to them, go and report back to John what you have seen and heard. In other words, what have you witnessed? What have you seen with your own eyes? What have you heard with your own ears? Go and tell John the news. What have you seen? Our text says, verse 21, the blind receive sight. Well, that's not usual. You've seen it, right? The blind receive sight. In your Bible, you might see it's written with capital letters. That just means Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah. He's not doing that by mistake, by the way. This is part of his message back to John. He's using very specific phrases here. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. Dead, the dead are raised up. And not just that, says Jesus. The poor have received the gospel preached to them. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. That was fulfilling that passage. You see, this was great news. The poor were even hearing the gospel message. Now that was very unusual in the religious focus of the day. Because the poor didn't actually feature much. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't concentrate on the poor. They concentrated on those who they could get something back from. Those are the ones who got the news. And it wasn't even the good news. And Jesus says, look at this. The poor have the gospel preached to them, fulfilling Isaiah. John, are you listening? You see, this message was very deliberately phrased by Jesus. And John would have recognized the the prophetic writings. He would have recognized the phrases... And this is from Isaiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the cripple and the lame man leap as a deer and the tongue of the dumb or the mute shall sing for joy. The spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me because Jehovah has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and the meek. And John would have known that passage off by heart. And he recognized, he would have recognized this message. And so what does Jesus say to this, this great man of God who's in prison and who seems to be wavering? What does Jesus say to him? You see, Jesus is tenderly saying to John, Do you remember these prophecies, John? This too was predicted concerning the Messiah. All this is being fulfilled in me, John. The kingdom is being built. And then he adds verse 23. And this is the one that is really important to to us. It gives us a little bit of an insight into John's heart. And remember, Jesus is all-knowing. He knew what John was thinking. And this is Jesus' specific message to John, verse 23. He says to him, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, if that wasn't there, then yes, this could have been a teaching moment for the disciples only. But because Jesus puts that phrase in there, and he uses a very specific word there, the word skandalizo, which means to put a stumbling block in the way upon which another may trip and fall. Hey? Why does Jesus say that? You see, when John was discouraged as he was there in prison, 
His discouragement would have been noticed by his disciples. And maybe John was starting to take offense that Jesus was not working in with his own picture of how things should work. Jesus, how can this be? Look at me. I'm sitting in prison. Is that part of your plan? Is that part of your kingdom, Jesus? Maybe he was starting to take offense. I'm saying maybe because the text's not explicit. Maybe his example was showing his disciples and causing distrust among them. Look at John. Wow, he's discouraged. Look at the question he's asking. You see, he could have been causing them to stumble. And so Jesus brings this message to him. He said, John, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I love, I love the way Jesus handles John. He doesn't scold John. Oh, come on, John. You are one of our greatest leaders. Pull yourself together, John. He doesn't say that, does he? No. He sends this gentle message of encouragement to John. He reminds him. He reminds his questioning follower of God's promises. And he says to him, look, John, God's promises are coming true. Here's the news. Your disciples will tell you all about it. You just hang on, and by God's grace, he will fulfill his promises to you too. You see, Jesus gives him a reassuring hope when John is going through his moment of doubt. You know, as a Christian leader, as a leader of this church, appointed here by the Lord, I take heart in that. Because I'll let you into one of my little secrets. I too have moments of wavering. I'm just human like you. But I take courage in this. You see, there's a bigger picture here. So these disciples go off with this message to John. Now, Jesus turns to the crowd. They've been hearing some of these questions. And already there were rumblings among the the crowd because they knew John was in prison. And all kinds of rumors were floating around about why John was in prison. And so Jesus turns to the crowd. You see, in those days, they believed that if something bad happened to you, you must have done something really bad. So God was punishing you. And so John's in prison. Obviously, he's done something bad. And so they come up later, verse 33, I think it is, where they say, well, he must have a demon. That was one of the rumors. And so Jesus turns to the crowd, and you can see Jesus' love for this disciple of his, John. And he says to to the crowd, defending John's reputation. He uses three questions. And the rhetorical answer there is no. So get it right, all right? It's not written there, but it's meant there. This is what he says. Was John a compromiser? Was he just like a reed blowing about in the wind? He says, speaking to the crowd. Was he a compromiser like you? Was he a compromiser like the Pharisees and the scribes? And the emphatic answer is no. You see, John took a strong, uncompromising stand for truth. Yes, he was having his moment of wavering, but his ministry was one of uncompromising truth. That was John. John was known for that. He wasn't known for his soft speaking. He was known for his straight talk, right? That's why he was in prison. So Jesus says, was John just like a reed, changing like you people? No. Was John just a celebrity is his second question? 
In your text it might say the one who is dressed in soft clothes and living in luxury. And usually people only lived in soft clothes and were dressed, uh, sorry, dressed in soft clothes and living in luxury if they, there was, there'd been some flattery to the king and the king gave them these clothes. It was very well known in those times. Was John one of these people? Did he just listen to Herod? Did Herod support him? Did he sponsor him and give him a nice place to stay? No. Where was John staying? In the desert. What was he eating? Locusts, honey. What was he wearing? Fine clothes? No. A camel coat. So, was John just another celebrity, says Jesus? No. He lived a Spartan existence without wealth. He wasn't befriended by great people. And yet he remained faithful to his task. Unlike the Pharisees. They were always pulling the wrong way. They were always speaking up when they could get something out of it. Thirdly, Jesus says, was John just another prophet? Was he just another prophet? We've had many prophets. He was just another one. Was he just one of them, says Jesus? No, says Jesus. He was the one whose ministry and who, whose person was prophesied about. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, and you've got that in your text. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who is that voice? It's John that's being prophesied about. Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, the Messiah. Who is that messenger? John. Man, imagine if your name was in the Bible and it was said that you were coming. Well, this was what John was in. He was in God's word. So was he just another prophet? No, says Jesus. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the Messiah's direct herald. The one making the announcement, he's here. This was who John was. He was the one who was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. How did John prepare the hearts of the people? Three ways. He directed the people's attention to Jesus. Not to himself, to Jesus. He said things like, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing at Jesus. So that's pointing at Jesus, right? Not to himself. Unlike the Pharisees again, who are pointing people away from the truth constantly. How else did John prepare the people for the Messiah? He emphasized the necessity of conversion and repentance as the only way to enter the Messiah's kingdom. He said stuff like, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing the hearts of the people. What did the Pharisees do? You just keep to our rules and you do these specific things and then you will be in God's kingdom. It's completely the opposite, you see. Thirdly, Jesus, how did, how did um, John prepare the people's hearts? He deliberately receded into the background when his task was over. What did he say? He said this, John chapter 3 verse 30, He must increase, I must decrease. He was really decreasing now. He was in prison. No one knew about him anymore. You see, he didn't call attention to himself. Unlike the Pharisees, what did they do? They stood on the street corners, bright colored clothing, people ringing bells, making sure everyone knew that they were now praying. Let us pray. Everyone saw. John didn't do that, you see. And so he was preparing the hearts of the people. And then Jesus gives an assessment of him. Look at verse 28. 
Jesus says, and this is quite a statement of the Son of God to make about a human being. What does he say? He says to them, among men born of woman, none is greater than John. Now, that would have made them sit up and take note. What? Of people born of woman? What about our patriarchs? What about Abraham? What about Moses? What about Elijah? You're saying this man is greater than John? Jesus says yes. And if you are humble like John, you are even greater than they. You see, Jesus is pushing a lesson home. Humility. And so John might be in prison and all these rumors might be floating around, but he had stuck to his task. He had been faithful to his task and he had stayed humble. And you need to do the same, says Jesus, and then you will be part of this kingdom of mine. You see the message? Let's go to verses 29 and 30 because the people have a response. You see, every time Jesus speaks, there's a response. Every time we read God's word and God speaks, there's a response. There's only two responses generally. What are they? Accept or reject? That's exactly what happens here. Look at verse 29. The common people and the tax collectors, the outcasts in other words, in the Pharisees' eyes, they heard what Jesus said and what happened? They accepted what Jesus said. They accepted what he had taught them and they justified God, says our text. In other words, they declared God righteous. Yes, that's right. We are sinful. We need to be humble and then we will be part of God's kingdom. They accepted the message. But the good old Pharisees, what did they do? The opposite. They rejected this message from Jesus Christ. And remember who is speaking? It's Jesus Christ. He can see their hearts. And in the past, these Pharisees hadn't accepted John's message, and they hadn't been baptized. And so now they don't change. They still don't accept the message, even though it's brought by the Messiah himself. And they reject Jesus. Rather, they justify themselves before God. What's your response this morning so far? Are you accepting God's word? Or are you kind of pushing it aside? There's only two responses. Verse 31 to 35. Jesus brings an accusation to the people standing around. And he does it in the form of a parable. And we're going to call it for this morning the parable of the brats. Okay? I've kind of summarized. The parable of the brats. You see, Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew that these people had rejected him. He knew that the others had accepted him. And now he speaks to the crowd that it rejected him. This is what he says. To what therefore shall I compare the children of this generation? What are they like? Jesus says to them, you are like fickle and quarrelsome children. When the marketplace is empty, get this picture in your mind now. Here's this group of children sitting playing in the marketplace. Let's play weddings. No. Okay. Let's play funerals. They didn't have TV, okay, so just bear with it. Let's play funerals. We even play, we'll play the sad music for you. No. What do you want to play? You see, did the children want to play anything? No. And that's the point Jesus is making here. John has brought you the message. I've brought you the message. We've done it in different styles. Look the way John dressed himself. He stayed out in the desert. He hardly ate anything. Locusts, honey, 
He was austere. He was straight down the line. And yet, what did you do? You wouldn't accept his message. And then I come along, the Messiah, and I eat. I eat with sinners. I go to parties with sinners. I go and mix with the outcasts. I bring them the message of the gospel. And what do you do? You still say, it's not good enough. You see what Jesus is saying there? They just wouldn't listen. They weren't, Jesus and John weren't dancing to their religious tune, and so they wouldn't play. Jesus says to them, you are determined not to listen, and so you shoot down the messengers. Don't we do the same? Sometimes we expect God to do things a certain way, and when he doesn't, what do we do? We tempted to start turning away, to start doubting God, thinking God's failed me. It might be that business proposition you've been looking at, and you've really prayed about it, and you're very clear, yes, I must do this, but then it doesn't work. Has God failed me? Or maybe you've been praying about your body and you've got something that needs healing and you've been praying about this. But God doesn't heal you. Is God leading me down? Or maybe your Christian life is not free from hardship and you kind of thought it would be a little bit easier being a Christian. But since you've become a Christian, it's really got hard. And so you're tempted to start doubting God. It's exactly the same thing, you see. We need to trust God. We need to trust His message. We need to trust His promises to us. Sometimes we do the same with our leaders. Sometimes we stand at the frontier and we bring you God's word. And many times it's not quite what you wanted to hear. And so what are we tempted to do? Reject it. Because it's not what our tickling ears wanted to hear. Second Timothy. Are you open this morning to what God is saying you need to hear? Are you open to the truth? Or are you also going to push it away? You see, here's God's word to you and I, verse 35, the last verse in that passage. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Pardon? What Jesus is saying here is, you will know their parent by their acceptance or their rejection of wisdom. You will know who the parent is by the way the person responds to wisdom. Godly wisdom. You see, the common people and the tax collectors accepted Jesus' message. But the Pharisees were looking for a salvation that was small enough to be earned their way. They couldn't accept God's message by grace. They couldn't do it. They had to earn their way into the kingdom. And Jesus was saying, no, that's not my way. But they wouldn't accept that. Are you and I the same? Are you willing to accept God's wisdom in your life or your own wisdom? You ask yourself this morning, okay, so the so what question, how does that apply to me? That's why I brought this triangle up here this morning. Can you all see this triangle? Those of you who didn't do maths, this is a triangle. All right. You see, sometimes in our lives, that's us down there, right? We see life from our little perspective. 
We've got our bit of wisdom down here. And so when things happen to us, we observe these things and we see things from our little perspective. And yes, God's got his promises given to us and there's quite a chunk of them. And if we put our faith in God, yes, he will save us. But we want to do things our way. And so there we stand in life, trying to balance out life. And the storms come against us, the wind and the waves, and we are trying to hold up life, right? From our perspective. And what's going to happen in the end? It's all going to come tumbling down on us. Why? Because if we do not accept Jesus' wisdom, all those promises that God made to Christians, all those things that God says will happen to people who don't believe will come crashing in on us at the judgment. Isn't that going to happen? You see, God's message to us is this this morning, and I'll come back to this triangle. Here's your first key word. When in doubt, and you're going to repeat this after me just now, I'm an ex-teacher. When in doubt, trust. When in doubt, trust. When you find yourself doubting, your faith beginning to fade, things and circumstances are not working out according to your plans, your timing, then trust God's promises to you. It starts in the heart and the mind. Trust God's promises to you. Don't doubt. Because doubt, if it's not handled properly, will turn into Unbelief. And unbelief is an attitude of the will. So trust. Trust God. Have faith in Him. What does Scripture say to us? Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 6. Listen carefully. This is the best definition of faith you'll ever hear. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Have you seen those things yet? No. Of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. You see, it's a heart and mind attitude. That is real faith. Now, what does he say? If you haven't got that faith, what's that like? Verse 6 of Hebrews. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you really believe that this morning? Do you believe that if you trust God, he will reward you one day? And you might not see it on this earth, but you will see it one day. He will reward you. You need to trust. And then it leads to the second action point. When in doubt, obey. When in doubt, obey. There's the action point. So I believe this now. Now it leads to obedience. You see, when we obey God's wisdom, when we are in a, in a time of doubt, we need to obey God's wisdom first. Yes, you might not understand everything. Yes, you might not see the answers yet, but obey God's wisdom in that situation of the unknown. Obey His wisdom. If His word says so, do it. Don't follow your own wisdom. Believe what He's promised, then act on it. Don't have the attitude of the Pharisees with their small picture, their own picture of God's kingdom, and so they willfully and publicly rejected God's wisdom. Don't be like the Pharisees. Look at God's answer to you. And one day he, you will have that answer and it will be so much greater than what you could ever have imagined. But trust Him and keep to His word. Obey Him. You see, God's answer to you is not at stake. Your obedience to what you can see 
is what is at stake. You can see God's word. You can see his promises. Are you willing to obey even though you can't see more? The old song, you'll all know it. You can sing with me if you like. Trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and then obey. Order does matter, by the way. Trust and obey. And then our last action point, and then we'll do the real actions, all right? When in doubt, look. When in doubt, look around you. Look at the evidences of God's grace. You see, that's what God said to the disciples. Look, what have you seen? Now go and report. What has God done in your life already? We need to look around a little bit. You see, so often in life when we start with this perspective, we start looking around at life and all the things that are coming against us and that forms the whole picture, doesn't it? But when we turn the triangle around, we've got all God's promises first, which we are now going to trust. We're going to trust God's promises, right? And there are many, many, many promises God makes us in his word. When we trust his promises and then we start obeying some of those promises, and the words that God has given to us, what happens then? All glory is given to God by our lives. All glory is given to God by our lives. And what type of foundation do we have in our lives? A really stable foundation. You don't have to stand around balancing your life around like this. Your life will stand on its own because it is standing in Jesus Christ. And can anything bowl Jesus Christ over? No. He's the all-powerful God. You are in Him. But you need to trust Him. You need to obey him and then look around and see what God has been doing in your life. Do you see the order? We tend to want to swap those rounds. I'm going to read you some of the promises from God's word and we're going to put them there loudly so you can see them. Look at what it says, Isaiah 26, verse 3 to 4. Take comfort in this this morning. You keep him or her, by the way, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. That means camped out ten pegs down. Stayed. Why? Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Beautiful promise, isn't it? Do you trust it? Are you willing to obey God when things come your way and you need to look to his word and just do what it says? Second promise, Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. This is what it says. Trust in the Lord with, what's the next word? All your heart. There's no exception here. No little gap left over. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And look at this. Lean not like a stick, raised stick. You've all seen it? Big one. Lean not on your own understanding. Because your understanding will bend and break. Lean not on your own understanding. In, there's that word again. All your ways, acknowledge him, put him first, and what will happen? He will make your paths straight. Yes, it might be straight through death, but it will go straight to where? To heaven. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 10. That's Paul speaking. Remember, I spoke about him earlier. He was in this situation where he just thought, I cannot carry on. Look at what he says. That's that specific passage. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, 
we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Okay, it's not in a high moment here. He's fairly down, right? But, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. Look at this now. This is trust. And He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope. That's the obedience. And He will deliver us again. What a beautiful promise, isn't it? He will deliver us. Now I can hear that question burning in you. So what about John? He lost his life, didn't he? Does that mean Jesus failed him? What would have happened the moment John lost his head? His body would have died, right? There's doctors here. His body would have died. But what would have happened to his spirit? He would have been received straight into the arms of God, wouldn't he? Was God keeping his promise to John? Did he keep his promise to John? Yes, of course he did. But God just had a different plan than John had. And so, God kept his promise to John. He delivered John in the end. One day, when we go to heaven, those of you coming with us to heaven, you need to be born again for that, by the way. We will see John there one day. And he won't be the guy walking around with his head under his arm. He'll be have his new body and he'll be praising God for delivering him. That's John. You'll recognize him. And we can ask him about that. And you can say to him, John... Did Jesus come through for you in the end? And he'll say, yes, he did. And then we'll all burst out into singing. We'll be. So what do we need to do? You're going to say this with me now. These are three things we need to remember. What is it? We need to trust. When in doubt, obey. When in doubt, look around and then look at the evidence. Say it again with me, please. It's like a drill. We need to know these things. Because when you're in that situation... You need to know these things because otherwise you're going to swing it around the other way. You're going to look. And then you might obey and mm, yeah, you might trust. But we need to do it the other way. So say it with me please. Draw with me this morning. When in doubt, trust. When in doubt, obey. When in doubt, then look. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word and Lord, Thank you for bringing us through this passage and the lesson that if we are humble and we give you honor first in our lives, then you will keep your promises to us in the end and you will deliver us. You will be there for us. And it doesn't matter whether our plans differ from your plans. Even if we lose our lives, you will be there to receive us if we are your children. And you will, we will be with you forever. The everlasting rock. Lord, keep us thinking right about these things. Keep our hearts in the right attitude with you, Lord. So that we will trust you. It doesn't matter what circumstances bring. And then we will step out and obey what you've told us to do. It doesn't matter whether we see the rest of the answer or not. We will obey what we can already see. And then we will look to see how God answers us. Lord, keep us faithful to your word. Because the world would teach us the opposite. Keep us faithful, we pray. And may you be glorified through our lives. We ask this in your precious, precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.